Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This morning, one of our key words in our study from Mark, actually from Luke that's connected with Mark, is going to be the word hidden. And the word uh, hidden is from the Greek uh, kryptos. And uh, so you may recognize that and uh, think about some of the words like cryptography. There's been some recent interest in uh, cryptography, of course, uh, with every, well, every day we hear about cracking computer codes and hackers and so on, reaching into codes and deciphering them. Uh, recently, a popular film about breaking the Enigma code during World War II that the Germans had. Cryptography is the study, uh, one of the definitions, the study or science of the technique of secret writing, especially codes and cipher systems, hidden meaning. Um, so at our church, uh, you know, we, um, we have our church secretaries uh, right now. Uh, well, I worked with Alice for, what, 25 years, Alice? 26, okay. And uh, right now, of course, Daryl Johnson and Julie Weber are church secretaries. And uh, one of the, the arts that they have to learn is cryptography. Um, because uh, we have certain people in our church who write in such a way. Um, <laughs> a certain missions committee chairman, specifically, who writes in such a way that it has to be deciphered. And uh, once they get to a point that they can decipher that, they are certified cryptologists. And uh, we bring everything to them that we get that we can't write and say, Do you, can you understand this? And uh, it makes my hand li- handwriting look like uh, calligraphy. But um, cryptology. And so this morning, we're going to talk about secret, something hidden, and actually it's the word cryptos in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you will help us understand your word Uh, We pray it will be meaningful to us, but more importantly, it will draw us to you as we uh, consider you and your your love for us and your wonderful plan of salvation and redemption that you have uh, made available to each of us and that we uh, have the joy of sharing with others. And we have even uh, sung these uh, last few minutes, these songs, about the amazing love and the fact that uh, Jesus Christ died for us and paid for our sins and opened the door to eternal life and the resurrection. So we ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been studying the Gospel of Mark together, and we've been studying in Sunday school and church uh, together, and uh, this will continue until Easter. Um, Good Friday, our choir is going to present a tenebrae service, a a musical uh, ministry with music and the words and the lights, and then we also have communion together, and that will be on Good Friday at 7.30. And then we will uh, culminate our study from Mark on Easter morning as we consider, of course, the resurrection. And so um, as we've been studying together each week in all of our adult classes, I'm sorry, all of our classes, early childhood through youth have been studying the same section of Mark together. And so one of the things that we have noticed in Mark is what some have referred to as the Messianic secret. Now that phrase actually goes back to about 1901 where a German theologian uh, coined that term and he came up with his reasons for it and definition. I wouldn't agree with his reasons and definition, but it became a well-known term and sort of became part of uh, 
the theological thought and development, the messianic secret. And we find this, and we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, um, we can almost say in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the four Gospels, that this particular theme seems to be very important. And it's almost as if the rest of the Gospel is sort of worked around this idea because it keeps coming up. And it comes up in very important places. So let's, just a quick review, let's, let's take a quick, fast journey through Mark, where we've been so far, and we will see this. Go back to the very beginning, chapter 1 of Mark. And I told you we would talk about this this morning, and I would do my best to try to answer what I think the reason for this is. And we're just going to read some of the highlights of these various accounts that we've already looked at in more detail throughout, throughout the Gospel. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 1, where Jesus drives out the demons, and in verse 24, they say, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demons flat out acknowledge and and, uh, verbalize, you are the Holy One of God. Now you you wouldn't call any human a Holy One. Only God is holy. And so they right away in the very beginning here announced basically his deity. We know who you are. You are the Holy One. You are God. And Jesus says, be quiet. It's very sharp. He says it sternly as it says in the NIV. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. An evil man shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus says, don't say that. You be quiet. Um, we look in uh, verses 34 of the same chapter. Chapter 1, verse 34. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. He would not allow them to proclaim who he was. Chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 41. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, about cleansing him. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cured. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading in the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. And he tells the man healed, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests as prescribed by Moses. Chapter 3. And we look in chapter 3 in verse 11. And talking about the number of people Jesus has healed, um, we can actually look at verse 10. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Chapter 4 and verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him, so that you have the inner core of the twelve, but you'll have other disciples as well uh, that were following with them. And they were around him and they asked him about the parable about the parable he had just told about the sower and the seeds. And he says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. For this reason, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, 
otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Chapter 4 and verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, then he explained everything. Chapter 5 and verse 41. He took her by the hand. This is the raising back to life of the little girl. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, this girl who was dead stood up, walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and then told them to give her something to eat. Uh, let's look at chapter 7 and verse 35. So you can see how this theme keeps coming up in Mark. Um, this is with the man that he, he made the spittle and put it in the man's ears and then he touched the man's tongue. In verse 34, he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said, Epiphatha, which means be open. At this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed and, and with amazement. But he had commanded him not to tell anyone. Chapter 8 and verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Chapter 8 and verse 27, as we continue this, and Jesus and his disciples went out to the regions, the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But who, what about you, he said, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Christos. This would be the equivalent in the Greek of the Hebrew Mashiach, which means Messiah. You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them, this is his disciples, not to tell anyone about him. And then chapter 9, where we were this past couple, this last Sunday, chapter 9 and verse 9, after the transfiguration, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead would mean. And then finally, uh, today's, really today's passage, which I wanted us to consider today, verse 30 of chapter 9. Of, uh, chapter 9, they left that place. And they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days he will arise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Three times in Mark, Jesus clearly tells his disciples that he is going to suffer and he is going to die. And this is the second one in Mark chapter 9 and verse, 30, and verse 31. In chapter 8, we see the same thing in verse 31. He then began to teach them 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Chapter 8, verse 31. The chief priests, the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and Peter began to rebuke Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And we're going to bring these thoughts together. This, this, this secret, if you will, of don't go out and talk about this. Don't broadcast what you've seen. Don't tell about this miracle. Don't tell I've raised this young lady from the dead. Blind man, don't go out and, and tell that you can see again. Lepers, don't go and tell that you've been cleansed. Demons, be quiet. Don't tell anybody what I, who I am and what you are saying. And then we find three times here in chapter 8, in chapter 9, what I read to you. And then in today's, in today's passage, in chapter, in chapter 10, we have the, we have the same thing. That, that Jesus tells his disciples again in verse 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 32. With Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. So we have in these passages this, this uh, demand, if you will, by Jesus, don't tell anybody. And we also see in Mark three times, very significant, and we'll see it in all the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, Luke, that Jesus specifically says, this is what's going to happen. Now, where our word hidden, kryptos, comes into play is in Luke's account of this. If you would go to Luke chapter 18 for a moment, just the next gospel, Luke chapter 18, in Luke's account of this, he adds a little detail that Mark doesn't have, but in Luke chapter 18, and... Um, uh, that's the wrong passage. Okay. Here we go. Chapter verse 31. Sorry. Luke 18, 31. Jesus took the 12 aside. And he told them. So here we, this is Luke's account of what we just read. We are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now I want you to notice, the disciples, that is, I think we're talking about the inner core here, the 12, the disciples did not understand any of this. Why? Its meaning was kryptos, was hidden from them. And he did not know, they did not know what he was talking about. This the language in the Greek language here, we, we call it a, a perfect passive participle. It, it makes it very clear. It was a, a strong something that had, that had taken place. It was hidden from their eyes, and, and it was a done deal, and they would not be able to understand it. Why was all this, why, why would this be hidden? And, it, and passive means it's something that happens to you. I was hit by the ball. The ball hit me. I didn't hit myself. It happened to me. This happened to them. It was hidden 
to them. Why would God desire to hide some of this truth from his, the disciples? Why was Jesus so intent on not having them tell who he was? However, we did see one exception. Do you remember that? It was the man from the Gadarene area outside of Israel, across to the east, over in the territory of the Gentiles, when Jesus went over there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he cast out the legion of demons from the man, remember, in the story of the pigs that went over the cliff and so forth. And afterward, the man said, Jesus, let me go with you. I want to come with you. I want to be your disciple. I'll serve you. I'll do anything. Let me come with you. And what did Jesus say? Can't go. But I want you to go home. And, I want, and here's the exception. I want you to go home and I want you to tell everyone the wonderful things that has happened to you. Now, why this exception? Why was this man told to go tell everybody and those within Israel where all this was taking place are told, don't tell anybody? What is this messianic secret? And what is the connection with what we read on these prophecies regarding Jesus telling the future as to what's going to happen to him? Well, here's, here's my answer. And... Um, this is my answer, and you, you're willing to consider this and give thought to it, and if you have a different answer, I'd love to talk with you and, and share with you and see. But I think that, I think that the, the, the solution lies in the fact that Jesus has a singular focus. What is the focus? What is the point at which he is drawn in his life? What is the reason? for Jesus to be here? Was, was the reason that Jesus came and, and lived among his fellow people and was the Messiah? And it was prophesied. We just, you know, we celebrated Christmas. It seems like the other day, doesn't it? And now we're talking about Easter. And during those Christmas messages, we read the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who would come to Israel and be a light to the nations and be the Savior of Israel. Yes, he came as the Messiah. He came as the Savior. But what was the focal point? What was the destination of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to earth? It was very specific. And you really catch this in these last, in, in the Gospels, when you read this last account of Jesus talking about what is to come. And we, and we saw this we saw this in chapter 10 where it says they were on their way to Jerusalem in verse 32 with Jesus leading the way. Why would it say that? And the other, the other gospels say they had this idea that his, he was fixed on Jerusalem. This idea that, he was, that it was, he was determined. He was going to do this. He was going to Jerusalem. And they were afraid. Why were they afraid for Jesus? They had, they had, seen, they had seen this man the Son of God, this Messiah that they were beginning to understand, and yet they weren't. They had seen him do miracles. He had raised the dead. He had cast out the demons. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. Um, you know, many, many people in these miracles, the water to wine, the people fed with a handful of bread and fish uh, twice. They had seen all this. Why are they afraid to go to Jerusalem? Because it very specifically says, it's like Jesus turned and, and would be heading south. And he turned and his focus was on Jerusalem and he, and he leads the way. And it's like the rest of them are like, 
well, let's go, but why are we doing this? What we're, this is not wise. This is not a good idea to go to Jerusalem. Because they understood the opposition. They understood the danger and the, and the hatred that was building toward Jesus among the, the religious elite, if you will. They understood this. And they were afraid. And they knew that Jerusalem was a dangerous place to go at this particular time. But Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Friends, the focal point of Jesus' life, the reason he came is very clear in the Scriptures. He says it himself. He came to die on the cross. He did not come the first time to, and this might surprise some of you, he did not come the first time. He came as the Messiah. But he did not come and offer himself to reign and overthrow the Romans and reign as their Messiah. He came to die. He had to die. I mean, ask yourself the question, what if, what if all of a sudden there was a groundswell in Israel to receive him and make him their king? You know, we did see this at one point. We didn't see it, but if we studied it in Gospel of John, you'll see it, where after he feeds the people, it says they want to make him king. And Jesus says, yes, you want to make me king because I've given you bread. And you're seeing what, what could be done, but that is, that's the only reason. It's not, because, it's not because you are willing to accept God's forgiveness. You are willing to change and repent. You want to receive bread. And that's the story where he turns and he leaves them and says, this is not, this is not right, this is not time. Jesus came to die. What if, he, what if, let's just think for a minute, if all of a sudden they came and they crowned him king, what if on Palm Sunday, and we do see for one flash really, we see this acceptance, we see this acclamation, we see the children crying out, we see the palm branches, and we see people crying Hosanna for that, for that one day. What if that groundswell took place and he was made king and he was put in Jerusalem as the king? He had to die. That is the reason he came the first time. He came to die on the cross at Calvary. And I think the reason that Jesus continues to tell them, don't broadcast this, don't tell this, because we see the result. There were times when they did broadcast that he couldn't even go in town and preach anymore. He had to go outside to the quiet areas because it was such a, it was such a chaos of people wanting to come and be healed. Jesus came to die. While he was on earth, he taught many wonderful things. He did many wonderful miracles. He changed many, many lives. We see it from the gospel's perspective, but you got to remember, there weren't that many people who were with him all the time and saw everything. Most people got a glimpse here, a glimpse there, and a glimpse here. The 12 were with him all the time. There were the 72 who were with him a lot. That story... That message of who he was and what he did and the teachings that he left after Jesus died and rose from the dead and after he was on earth, after his resurrection, and, they, and, and you can imagine the shock, the absolute shock for these disciples and the women to actually see him and touch him. They knew he died. They saw him on the cross. They saw his life leave him. They saw it expire. They saw the blood run down. Joseph and Nicodemus took him and handled his body, a dead body. He was dead. They handled him. They wrapped him up. 
it was bleeding, and they, wa and they washed him, and they quickly put him in the tomb. If anybody knew he was dead, it was Joseph and Nicodemus, because they carried him and put him in the tomb. They knew he was dead. And he was alive again. And he was with them for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he took his disciples back to the Old Testament. And he showed them from the Old Testament, look it, it predicted this all along. No one understood it. Nobody really got it. The rabbis didn't even catch it, really, that the Messiah had to die and suffer for sin. And after those 40 days, when he was taken away from them, and the angel, remember in the story of Acts, when the angel said, why are you standing here looking into heaven? The same Jesus who left, he is going to come again. Go do what he told you to do. What did he tell his disciples to do? He told them to begin in Jerusalem. Begin in Jerusalem, where it was supposed to begin. And begin with this story. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is alive. Now it all fits together. Now we can understand it. Now we broadcast it. Now we tell every, now we understand. Here's what he taught us back when we were with him. He taught us this. He taught us that. He did this. He did that. He told us the parable we saw in chapter 4 of Mark. The parable of the man who goes out and he plants the seeds. And it says he doesn't really understand how it happens, but before he knows it, the crop is there. It's this hiddenness. And Jesus tells his disciples, and they do it, and they go out in the book of Acts, and Peter stands up, and you can read the early chapters of the book of Acts, and Peter stands up and proclaims, listen, my friends, if we repent, if we change our mind, if we receive him, God is going to send him back. He's going to come back, and he is going to set up the times of refreshing, and we are going to have this wonderful kingdom now it could be broadcast. Now it could be told. Because if beforehand, he had to die. And the message was kept. It was, it was even hidden from the disciples. They were not allowed. I'm gonna tell, this is, I don't know how else to read it. I didn't write it. I'm just, I don't know how else to read it. When it says, it was hidden from them. I think the, the Holman Bible Dictionary put it well. He puts it well. They were looking, the people were looking for a political deliverer. Jesus did not force people to accept him as Messiah. They also needed time. This is the disciples. They needed time to come to terms with his messianic agenda, which was messianic suffering precedes messianic glory. Complete human understanding of the messianic secret will only be possible after the resurrection. Therefore, no immediate messianic profession would possess any depth of understanding, especially demonic confession from the demons. Jesus forced the disciples to think about this secret until they could articulate the secret until the resurrection. So I think the reason Jesus, and in Mark especially, highlights this, this theme, don't tell anybody, it's because there was, number one, there was no way anybody could fully understand, even those closest to him, even Peter, when Jesus predicted his death, he rebuked Jesus. Think of that. I mean, he, Peter rebuked him and said, don't talk that way. Be quiet, Jesus. And, and Jesus sternly rebuked him and said, what? Get behind me, Satan. Wow. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. You do not see things the way God sees them. They were not allowed. Nobody could understand. But when he rose from the dead, and these men took this message, and these women who had seen Jesus and worked and, and served him, 
when they brought this message of the gospel of the love of God and forgiveness for sins, it all came together with the cross of Calvary. Now we understand. Now we can make it clear. Now everyone has the opportunity to open their ears and open their hearts because the message is clear. The Messiah had to die and pay for sins. Hence, the secret, the hiddenness, because the focal point of Jesus' ministry, and if you don't remember anything else, the focal point of Jesus' life, the gospel says he set his eyes on Jerusalem, and he went there, because that is why he came, to suffer and to die, and to pay for their sin and my sin and your sin. We will study more later, and, and, and as we've been studying on Sunday night in our studies, and, and to find out that, you know, there was another hidden thing too. You know, you know God, God knows what he's doing. Aren't you glad? <laughs> God knows what he's doing. There was a reason why it was done that way. And after the leadership of Israel continued to reject and reject and reject the, the resurrected Christ. And they sat in Moses' seat. Jesus said, listen to them. Don't do what they do, but you better listen to them. They sit in Moses' seat. There was authority there. And as they stoned Stephen and they continued to reject, God does something hidden once again that nobody would have understood. Nobody could have prophesied. And that's us. The church, the body of Christ. We're Jew and Gentile. We do not come to Christ as Messiah to reign over Israel and to set, us, and set aside the Romans and to free us politically. But he does something that had been kept hidden for ages. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Go home and read those chapters in one setting. Something that had previously been undisclosed, that had been hidden in God. It wasn't plan B. It was God's plan. And it's God's plan was that Jew and Gentile would be welcome on equal basis apart from anything having to do with the Mosaic law. But through simple faith in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, and Paul calls us the new people of God, the new humanity, the new man, the church, the body of Christ. God knows what he's doing. And God has revealed to us in the book of Revelation what is yet to come. And what his plan for the world is. God has a plan of salvation. And it's a wonderful plan. Now let me just, we'll wrap up this with, with Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Why did Christ come? Why did it happen this way? Why did they reject him? Because he had to die for sin. He had to pay for the sins of the world. He had to offer himself as Messiah to Israel. And that message of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant in his blood has been opened up for all. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, because this is the man who was one of those who was persecuting the church, who was killing Christians, who was trying to stomp it out after he rose from the dead. And in verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. Paul says, I acted in ignorance. I thought I was doing God a favor. He was blinded. It was hidden from him. But on the road to Damascus, it was revealed. Look at verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying 
that deserves full acceptance. Why did Jesus come? Paul tells you right here in, in one very short sentence. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the first in line. I am the chief. This is why he came to die on the cross and to save sinners. Hence, the hiddenness, the secret, if you will, it was for a time, but was fully revealed after the resurrection. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with you and me today? Friends, we are a Christian church. We are Christ ones, Christians. That's where the word comes from. And I just want to remind, and I want to start with me this morning. I never remind you of anything that I don't remind myself. I hope you understand that. I hope, and I hope you believe that. We as pastors and, and shepherds and elders in this church, uh, we do not set ourselves above you. We, I want to remind myself first. And I want to remind you as well that everything that we do at this church needs to start from a focal point. There is, there is one focal reason that we exist. We celebrated our 50th anniversary this past year. There's one focal reason. Everything else revolves around that. Everything. And we have a lot of ministries. We have a, a women's uh, soup and sharing night that you're invited. And ladies, you should go to it. It's, it's great. How do I know? Because I'm always hanging out here, and, uh, <laughs> and I see what's going on, and I, and I get soup, okay? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing if the pastor hangs around and something gets over, and do you want something to eat? No, no, okay. Anyway, I'm telling you, but I watch what they do in there. It's a wonderful time to get to know people and to talk, and to, you meet new people, you do good things. It's a good ministry. It's one of our greatest ministries. Our women's ministry is one of our greatest ministries for, for people getting to know each other, inviting friends. People who wouldn't come to church for other things would come for some of these things. You should come and be a part of that. It's only $5. I'll, really, what Gary said, don't ever let money stand in the way. Our men's banquet's going to be the first one we're going to have. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. It's, it's a different ministry. We have basketball. We have youth activities. We have camp. We have clubs on Wednesday night. We have, uh, Gary's putting that in the bulletin or in the email this week about our work with the Children's Center and so on. We do things in our community. We have all sorts of ministries, friends, but they all revolve and they must always revolve around one focal point. Because if we lose that focal point, we will lose everything else. Well, we might be a great institution. And we might do a lot of good things. We may have a lot of fun and so on. But if we lose our focal point, we lose everything. And I'm telling myself first as your pastor, and the focal point is right behind me. That's why it's there. That's why when our church was founded, the choice was to put the empty cross front and center. And I'm not saying that others that don't. I'm just saying for us, it was important to put it there as a focal point to remind us that everything we do starts and finishes with the proclamation of the good news that God loves you and that Jesus came to earth 
Yes, he lived the perfect life. If Satan, if Satan could have caused him to accept that offer for the mount of temptation, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all this. And Jesus never says, not yours to give. If he could have got him to do that and not go to the cross, there would be no salvation. Everything we do must start and finish at some point with the message of the gospel that God loves you, loves you very much. God loves your neighbors, all your neighbors. God loves your relatives. God loves your children. God loves your friends. And he loves us so much that Jesus Christ came to earth and suffered excruciating punishment by God. Yes, by God. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to strike him. Twice it says that. Because God poured out his wrath, his holy wrath against all the crud and the sin and the darkness. And we know about darkness. And he poured it out on Christ at the cross of Calvary and it was satisfied there. You and I could never, ever begin to scratch the surface on what my Lord went through for me and the cross of Calvary. That's why we're here. And listen, friends, if we ever deviate from that, you have a responsibility. Parents, you owe it to your kids. Whether it's just church or any church, if we deviate from the truth of God's word and if we ever are afraid to preach and teach what we understand God's word to say, you better say something because it is why we are here. You know, there was, as far as I can tell, maybe one person, it was hidden from them, even the disciples. But there, there seemed to be one person who, for some reason, God chose to, to um, give a little more insight into what was going to happen. While he was in Bethany, toward the end here, the end of the story of Mark, last week, just before Passover, it was at hand. Reclining at the table, sitting at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured the perfume on Jesus' head. And you know the story. Some of those were indignant. So why did you waste this money? This could have been sold. It's a year's worth of money. Think of that. I don't know. Think of what your family makes in a year and put that into one bottle of perfume and break it and pour it over the Lord's head. And it's a waste. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you. You can always help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me with you. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Maybe there was one person that, that was given a little more insight than anybody else as to what was going to happen and how much it was worth. 
how much it was worth. And she came and she worshiped the Lord. We've come today, friends, to worship our Lord every Sunday because it is Resurrection Sunday. It's the day he rose from the dead and accomplished our salvation. Please, keep the focal point in your life and in our church's life, in your family's life, parents and grandparents, keep the focal point and let everything else revolve around that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Let's close our service with our final song of worship. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you and uh, we celebrate a new beginning today. It's the first day of a new week, Resurrection Sunday, day number one, the day our Lord rose from the dead. It's why we gather every Sunday. And Father, as we begin this new week and we worship a God of new beginnings, uh, we pray for a fresh and a uh, genuine and biblical uh, insight into how much you love us and how much our salvation costs and how humbled we are and how grateful we are, Father, that you have called us to yourself. And Father, what a joy it is to even proclaim from this very spot to everyone here in case there's someone here who has not received your Son as their Savior and has never received your forgiveness for sins, that they can do so today by saying yes to you. By saying, yes, I recognize my need for salvation. And I believe now that Christ died on the cross for my sins. I don't understand everything, but I'm willing by simple faith to receive your forgiveness for my sins and receive eternal life. Father, open their hearts to the gospel. Open their hearts today. And Lord, we thank you for our children and our grandchildren. And Lord, uh, we just pray today that our young people and our children, they deserve to be part of a church family that is committed to the focal point of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us. And we pray that you will enable us to stay focused on that and to keep that in focus so that all that we do will find its place as we minister to the whole person as we serve and love together and worship together and share the gospel together in the name of our beautiful and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name.